Hello, friends. Welcome to the podcast. Today, my guest is Heather Hogan, who is a coach, a meditation instructor, and is studying to be a deaf doula. So, welcome to the Vessel Academy podcast. How are you faring? Um, you know, I'm faring okay. I'm keeping really, really busy in this time, for better or worse. Um, yeah, I've. I left New York um, for some family stuff before COVID hit and then uh, sort of was marooned in Virginia for some time and now I'm in North Carolina. Um, so it's been good and it's been very shifty, a little bit of building stuff on sand at the moment, but mm-hmm. all in all pretty good. Yeah. Um, I, uh, I spent a good portion of my early childhood in North Carolina. Um, I grew up all up and down the East Coast, and then um, I found yoga and meditation when I came to New York be- out of just total necessity. I was getting my nervous system was getting its ass kicked mm. in the big city. I needed to find a way of dealing with the encroaching, uh, you know, TMJ and sleepless nights, particularly as an artist. Mm-hmm. So you know, that's I think that's how we met through meditation yoga circles. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See? Yeah. In fact, when you came in, I was sitting at a table reading the book by Alan Watts and you rushed in the door, walked by and said, that is a fantastic book and then got an avocado and walked away. <laughs> and I was like, I'm probably going to be friends with that guy. <laughs> yeah, that, that's a brilliant book. That's one of the fantasies I have for this podcast is to take a chapter, one at a time per podcast from that book and discuss it, dig into it. Yeah, it's, I mean, that was a life-changing book for me. Um, Yeah, I mean, I think that that was something that I found sort of early on in my spiritual path. And it was one of the first things that felt like I didn't have to decipher it. Like I wasn't showing up to a closed club where everybody had the language and everybody else knew what was going on. And um, it felt like very real and very mystical and accessible. Like you could just feel like the second you opened it, the language just opened up and was like, yeah, okay, this is where you belong. Mm-hmm. I was like, oh, okay. Mm-hmm. This is going to be the beginning of a beautiful relationship. And, and it is, I actually have a collection of um, letters of his. Um, it was a book that was put together by his two daughters. And it, it starts literally like from the time that he started writing as a kid and it's full of letters from boarding school to his parents but it's alan watts life in letters and it's it's neat to uh it's very like ozian in that way right of like getting a peek behind the curtain to see like more about what his life was like and his internal experience of his journey of just being a person Mm -hmm. yeah a rascal He's like Star Wars. Every time I listen to a podcast or read his words, I see another layer. And I'm a little bit embarrassed at how I, I thought how simple he teaches. He, there's magic in it because, you know, obviously simple is uh, profound. It's not the same as easy or being simplistic. But my intellect craves sophistication and 
every time I return to any one of his talks, I'm like hearing it with fresh ears and, and just in awe of his depth. Mm-hmm. And I think you're totally right that with something being simple, but also having so many layers. And I, I love that because um, th- that book, the book in particular to me feels that same way. Like I've reread it many times. And the first time I went through, I kept a pencil with me, you know, like underlining the stuff that stood out. And then the second time used a black ballpoint pen to see mm-hmm. what hit me again or what hit me differently. Um, which is always exciting, I think, to kind of get an idea of your own evolution. Like we're always experiencing something from behind our own eyes and we kind of forget to uh, to sort of witness how far we've come. And so that thing of where I was experiencing stuff where I was like, oh, this this book to me feels very convoluted and I can't get into it. And it's because I just hadn't hit the foundational points in my own journey to be able to walk in and like punch it's like punching in a code on a keypad that like I needed the code and there's something about his stuff that helps me sort of reflect on how much more I've been able to open because every time that book opens up a whole new layer then you're like oh that means I've peeled something back Mm -hmm. that now it's touching in on this awareness and it's special there are a handful of books like that um women who run with the wolves by clarissa pincola estes Mm -hmm. is one of those books um which if you haven't read it i highly recommend it it's so good it's so good yeah all all of my favorite women have read it and it's on like the top of their books next to the nightstand i mean it makes you feel like you should be walking around in a wolf skin and setting shit on fire (laughs) this is actually who i am and why do i pretend i'm not Mm-hmm. Well, that might be because we've lost in the West the rite of passage. You Ooh. know, like my friend um, just had a rite of passage where she spent four nights on the side of a mountain in a dugout hole with, mm-hmm. I think, a little water, maybe, and uh, by herself. Mm. I mean, where else, unless we go out and actively seek for it, in Western culture, it just doesn't exist. So we might have like taking your um, SATs or, or something. Yeah. And the first it, time you file your taxes, but no rights of passage. That's not fun or sexy at all. You know, you're not looking back and being like, man, I really filed my taxes so well this year. <laughs> I'm, no, I'm a man. Yeah. <laughs> you, know, I, you know, I was thinking about that recently. I'm reading a book called um, Die Wise by Stephen Jenkinson. And it's, it's brilliant. He's a beautiful writer. And his background is that he's got a master's in uh, clinical social work and um, in theology from Harvard. But he's also like a farmer in Canada. And his language is beautiful. And the way he structures, because it'll be sort of this instructional path with a story inside of it. So when you get through some of the dense stuff that's a little bit drier, you get into these really juicy parts too. Um, But in it, he actually talks about the idea of homelessness within our culture and its relation to the way that we experience and view death in the Western culture and particularly in North America. And it's so interesting because he talks about the idea of us having homeless gods, right? That in a, 
polytheistic society where people were migratory. You had people who carried their homes on their backs. So the idea of being away from home never really occurred to them because home is within themselves and community. And so you can take that and you can put it in any environment and home exists. And that after we created agriculture and we created a stationary home was a similar time when we started to move into these monotheistic um, worship mindsets and that the gods that we worshiped were no longer among us in any way, but we started to see them as other, as being somewhere above and beyond and far away from where we are, which made our gods homeless. Mm -hmm. And so if our God is part of um, our, not even our resurrection really, but you know, our salvation, um, it's no wonder that we wander feeling lost within our lives and certainly around death when the one who's supposed to take care of us is also removed and far away. Mm -hmm. And it was such a, an interesting thing to come across because it's a reflection of our lack of right of passages, right? That there, there is no shaping through demarcation our journey and our home within ourselves. Mm-hmm. So people like you and I are people who go and start seeking that out because you feel the hunger for it. Yeah, and it's what makes me cut through my procrastination, my indecision, my shittiness. You know, when I'm in a bad mood, remembering that death is certain, the time of death is uncertain, mm -hmm. and what will I do with this next moment? That's the center point of the yogic practice for sure in terms of watching the breath being present for the end of the exhale and and feeling that thread that my life hangs from you know I, there's no taking an inhale it's going to be given or not mm -hmm. and then the breath manipulation is about savoring it so that if we only have so many breaths like grains in a in an hourglass then we want to use them slowly mm -hmm. um that finding the pulse and and these deep inquiries into what dies mm -hmm. you know what part of this idea of a me is really real that daily inquiry for me also alloyed with psychedelic experiences and retreat experiences and i have add so i like risk <laughs> experiences that's been the uh, joie de vivre Without it, I would be, you know, really dragging my feet and I think mm. not holding my personality to a higher standard of excellence. Mm -hmm. Because it's very easy to do, right? Like this, uh, this expectation, you know what, actually, I think it's really entitlement, this view that we are entitled to the next breath is something that actually becomes uh, a, a block in our lives and it keeps us from getting to the point where we're really fully present and really fully accessing what we have now and what we want to make and what we want to do. And that ability to turn your mind from that moment of negative thinking. And for me, like, it's hard. It's like turning the Titanic. It's not like turning a speedboat. As much as I want to be able to be like, I'm a real bitch today and I'd like to, you know, not be... It takes some time, but that constant awareness of 
I don't have the right to my next breath. Mm. I will be lucky when it comes and what a joy that is and how special that is and why I waste it in the way that I'm using it now. Yeah. Um, yeah. And I, I find that so powerful. Well, some people, I don't know. It's funny. You talk to people and they find it morbid and intense sometimes, but for me, it's like a really good motivation tool. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I and mean, part of, part of why I wanted to share this time together is that you are studying to be a death doula. And to your point, you know, a few years ago, I was in Austin, Texas. I was invited to um, co-lead a meditation training. And one of the students, uh, Chuck, was very close to death uh, for an extended period of time. And he was in the circle and we were all um, working with him in a, in a group activity. And somewhere in there, we asked him, you know, what do you want the most? And he said, another moment. And that, that really never left me, just the way he said it and the look in his eyes and the amount of openness in his heart and no fear. Uh, so I'm, I'm curious with your studies and your experiences, uh, how do you see, what, is, what qualifications does a death doula have and, and how do you see this being something that can benefit the Western mind. Yeah. Um, the qualifications are really like, you know, you don't necessarily have to do a training in order to do it. One of the reasons why I wanted to do it is because I've been present for death um, a handful of times and, you know, the dying process for, I don't know, six or seven people and they're at the moment of death now for four of them. Um, and it always kind of struck me, like the first death that I experienced struck me so intensely that I thought, there's a reason that I'm experiencing this. I was 16 and I didn't necessarily have any design of what that would look like, but it made a huge impact and was also this thing of like, put this knowledge in your pocket because someone else will benefit from this. And then as I sat with death more and more, simply by, you know, when people get ill, you circle the wagons. Like that is what my people do. We show up for it. Um, and so a few years ago, I started looking into death doula trainings. I'd heard about it and we had had um, hospice at home. And um, when I started to look into death doula trainings, I realized that um, oftentimes they'll have you do volunteer with hospice. Cause there are some people who go into being a death doula who have never been around death at all, which to me, those people are fascinating. Like. Mm -hmm. How and why did you end up here? Mm -hmm. um, but I think ultimately people working in the death trades and having some really honest conversations about it will be something that serves society at large because there is so much fear. Um, so I think it works on sort of both ends in terms of helping someone prepare for their death. So this is, you know, leading them in conversations about their advanced directives. What do you want to do when your illness progresses to a certain point? You know, a DNR, so do not resuscitate. Um, whether you would want, you know, machines or tubes or extreme measures. And doing that while someone is either well and they're just planning ahead or is post-diagnosis and um, helping them kind of figure out things as it goes. 
funeral planning, estate planning, that kind of stuff. So the, the sort of paperworky practical part that bureaucratic stuff is not my strong point, but you know, some people love it. Um, and then some of the more hands-on stuff. So um, creating the space and creating the experience and actually having conversations with people about what their ideal death would be. We don't know when it's coming. We know that it's coming. We don't know when. And we have very little control, but if we can have conversations about what we would like it to look like, should we be able to influence that? I think it's important because it sets up their support team to be able to create an environment that creates a good death for everyone involved. You know, it's a really loving act when we consider our own death in terms of how it affects the people that we leave behind. Um, and then, you know, from the reverse perspective is the life coach perspective too, is like taking those Buddhist principles and bringing them to the front of people's minds and saying like, Hey, you aren't guaranteed another day. So like, what the fuck do you want to do with this one? Mm -hmm. And if that's true, if that's what you really want, why are you not doing it? And let's break that down because there is a limited amount of time. So I think it just gives people this opportunity for connection and to engage passionately with whatever life you have left. Yeah. How many people have you worked with in, in this capacity? Um, I mean, currently I haven't worked with anybody in a professional capacity. Um, that will be, you know, it, it's an interesting thing to try to navigate now in this time because so many things are digital um, that even uh, death care, has become digital because of the lack of safety around, you know, current situation. Um, but let's see, I was with my stepfather, my mother-in-law, my grandmother, um, my sister's mother-in-law, my dad, um, my aunt. So six off the top of my head. Wow. Yeah. Wow. And, what was the difference in the letting go experience for the, for those who had thought about it, had you know a view that uh, death was not just oblivion, but there was a con continuation versus those who who didn't feel that way that this is just blackout, and I want to leave things good for all y'all. It's not so yeah. much where my spirit what condition my spirit mind will be in on the other side. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I think it, it's so individual and it's, it's always so different, um, you know, on that spectrum of people. So my grandfather's included in that, but I wasn't with him in the time of his illness. Um, and his death, I would classify as a really good death. Um, what happened? So I had called him, I was in school and I called him in January and asked if I could spend my spring break with him. And he was over the moon excited because I was going to be coming from New York out to Oklahoma. And um, he was like, yeah, absolutely. That would be great. And he was like one of my best buds, you know? So um, in the week or so, two weeks leading up to me going out there, he would call me periodically and just be like, I'm just waiting for you to get here. And there was something in me that I was like, something's not right. Um, I was going to be coming there on uh, the Saturday before Easter, the day before Easter. 
And I convinced my sister to come out with her brand new daughter, the only great grandchild at the time. We were going to surprise him all together. Mm. And he went into the hospital on Tuesday. Um, he had not, I mean, he'd been ill with respiratory stuff, but had not been sick. And um, went in on Saturday, on, on Tuesday, and he died on Friday. And I arrived the next day after months of planning. So, like, I just missed him by less than 24 hours. And it was really remarkable because he had a bunch of uh, comorbid lung issues. And in the hospital, you know, he's on crazy amounts of oxygen and people are there. And um, his doctor comes in and, you know, they're not always the most straightforward doctors. Like, very few of them like to look at you and say, you're dying right now. Mm -hmm. And so they're sort of talking about stuff. And Grandpa was not that way. And so um, he looked at his wife and he had the full oxygen mask off and he are on and he said, is this it? And she said, what do you mean? And he goes, is this it? The rest of my life is this in a hospital bed like this? And she said, yeah, honey. And he said, okay. And his friends who were there, he said, have them come in. They came in. This man who could not go without oxygen for like five minutes at a go took his oxygen mask off and for 45 minutes told a brief synopsis of his life story and then died surrounded by people that he loved. Mm. And that I thought was amazing. And the bigger thing was that one phone call had to be made when he died. And that was the phone call to the funeral home. And once that domino was tipped, everything else went off. He had secretly paid off their house behind his wife's back. So she got the news that she had a full out deed. He had um, signed over deeds and titles to large items, the airplane, the motorhome, stuff like that. So that would all be handled. Everything was filed away in its individual envelope for everyone. And it was like, and he was a colonel in the, in the army. So that showed up nicely, all of his Virgo pension for organization. Yeah. It was perfect. I think it was cool too, because it was to whatever degree it was under his own terms. And that loss of agency, I think is what so many people fear. Yeah. And, and he was like, Oh, this is the tipping point. This is the one beyond this. I don't want to see what's here. So let me just go ahead and check out. Yeah. <laughs> I firmly believe in that's every individual's right. And that's a testament to his warriorship and mm -hmm. his clarity. Um, it, it's always boggled my mind that the people are out to protect life no matter what, even if that life is riddled with suffering. Mm -hmm. I'm not talking about existential. I'm talking about someone is hooked up to a machine and a semi-vegetative or completely vegetative state and it's everyone else clinging to that heart beating when in, in natural circumstances they wouldn't be there mm -hmm. they would have left and I, this is a whole deeper conversation about what is life like when sperm and ovum come together there's plenty of people trying to make life with just the material causes and it's not enough. There has to be a spark. Mm -hmm. So what is that spark? And from a yogic perspective, that is Shakti, that is Prana, that is energy. Mm 
that animates the elements of the animal for as long as they're alive. And then as it starts to dwindle, you know, you see all the signs like we can't move as much. Our circulation is decreased. Our, our fire goes down like we're always cold, difficulty breathing, and then signs that consciousness is going to drop off. And it, it's so strange that just the proliferation of energy through a human animal, no matter what, that that is um, not left to that individual's wishes unless they really go through the bureaucratic process. They can actually be chained to a, a suffering animal body. Mm -hmm. So as far as a good death for someone, having their bureaucratic paperwork in order and also what else do you see as has been helpful to people you know i think that it you know i look back at some of the deaths that i was present for and i can see especially through the lens of this training like things that i would have done differently as a support person in that um because I, I believe that same thing as you do, that I think that this this prolonged amount of time that we have the technology to create is not necessarily, you know, this is, it's that just because we can doesn't mean we should. Yeah, exactly. Um, what I find more and more, right, there there is the physical suffering. And this is why we have palliative care. Um, which is interesting because actually in, the, in uh, Stephen Jenkinson's book, he talks about the um, etymology of the word palliative and that the base of it is pall, so to, um, to veil. And that the word palliative holds that, that we veil pain, we veil the suffering, the physical suffering of the experience of death for the dying person and for the people around them. And then also that it's the base of pallbearer that it is the, the last the last way we move someone out of this world still shrouds the living from the view of the death. Um, so there is the physical suffering aspect, but the existential suffering seems to be the majority of it. Um, like at the end of life to see someone who's full of faith, like my, my brother-in-law's mom who just passed a few months ago in um, the first week of February, was a devout Catholic and was someone who prayed and, you know, every morning got up and like watched live streams of the Pope <laughs> from Rome. And, um, and hers was a really stunning death because she got the news. It's going to be sometime in the next two weeks. And immediately on the ride, I was there with her at the, the doctor's office when she got that news. And on the drive back to the house, she, started telling stories about her husband who had passed now 40 years ago and um, telling her son how proud of him she was. And there was so much sweetness because she was ready. She had that sense of going home. Mm -hmm. And the grace that she met this change with was astounding. And it was really like nothing I've ever seen. Um, and in contrast, my dad, who actually just passed a month ago, um, was not ready and didn't have the solidity of mind in terms of faith or spirituality or dharma. 
to to turn his awareness to. And so there was this medical intervention that gave you like more time, but the quality of that more time was greatly, greatly diminished and Mm -hmm. was just three months of knowing that death is waiting at the doorstep in a way that's wholly different than the way that you and I say this as healthy people who intellectually say, I know death is here. Um, And I remember asking him, you know, is it better to know or not know? And he said to me, I think it's better to know. And we had just had a very deep spiritual conversation. And to know that one's dying. Yeah, to know that like your death is imminent, you know. And, you know, then 20 minutes later, he has a conversation with his wife and he just like just a regular, you know, what do you want for dinner conversation? And the grief of what was there was overwhelming. And he said, maybe it's not better to know. And so that you know that people who are dying are going through those shifts second by second when they don't have the thread of something else to hold on to. Um, and so it was, it was a really interesting thing. And what I know that he needed more and wish that I could have provided more were asking more questions and having conversations with him from a spiritual standpoint. Um, because I feel like that might have alleviated some of the fear. But you could see, I mean, it was, it was very, very apparent the way that the fear was causing grasping to this life. And I think it's not so much death that we fear. We fear the dying process and we fear the not knowing of what comes after. Mm-hmm. And so the more that you can, as a, a well-living person, try to have those conversations and stand at the edge with them as much as you can. Yeah, I have, I have a lot of compassion for beings who have not had a spiritual practice that allowed them, speaking of veils, to rend the veil between states right like to lie down every night and black out basically die to this uh world of physics and physical objects and completely black out go into a delta state and then wake up in a dream realm where physics doesn't apply you may just be appearing in an airport without ever having taken a car there and we take all of that for absolutely real and then forget it all when we wake up. And the practice of yogis and Buddhists and psychonauts is to explore the bardos, these in-between states, rend the veil and see who am I and what is my relationship to all of this. Mm-hmm. And to enter into volitional disso- disassociative states to see what pushes certain thoughts and images into consciousness from the subconscious and the unconscious, this, you know, society of minds that our consciousness is floating on top of like a bottle cap on the notion. To dare to do that uh, and to do it over and over as a spiritual practice, as a philosophy of being most alive, um, I ha- it, it hurts my heart when... I hear people have never had the curiosity, uh, won't look outside the box because they're, you know, perhaps the 
the religious institution they've signed up to doesn't sanction it or threatens them against it. And then don't even get me started about psychedelics. I'm not, I would never say that one thing is good for everyone. However, I feel, and from the research uh, that's slowly being permitted around, you know, medicinal mushrooms helping people have a, not just a palliative phase before they physically die, but a meaningful preview that when the physical body goes offline, there is a whole nother dimension of reality experience that can be glimpsed and returned from, and those experiences can build on one another. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, there are so many things that come up for me in my mind around that because there's the judgment, right, that whatever structures are put in place, whether it is a religious organization or whether it's, you know, dare or just say no, right? That there is this idea that what you experience in these altered states is something that is uh, unreliable and has no value. And therefore we need to completely deny, um, you know, the, the worth that it gives us, right? Um, and then you have these lovely organizations like MAPS or people like Michael Pollan who are, you know, doing these really beautiful books and research and amalgamation of information on it. Um, you know, my educational background is in psychology and neuroscience. And one of the things that we had to look at in some of my classes were the effects of drugs um, on the body, particularly when the target is the brain. And so what happens to a drug when it goes into the body? How does the body break it down to use it? And then how does the drug influence the body? And we talked about this with illicit substances and specifically with psychedelics, looking at the nuclei in the brain that are touched. So what neurochemicals and um, transmitters and hormones are all being activated and at what levels and how and why. But also what area of the brain when you put someone in an MRI is receiving all of this oxygenation. And with something like ayahuasca or something like psilocybin, you see that the nucleus in the brain that starts to activate is the same part that when there are people who are in deep prayer or in deep meditation, begin to actually use the ethereal mind paired with intention to begin to oxygenate the areas of, like that area of the brain where we associate religious experience mm -hmm. and so i think you're totally right in that you know we say that some things are valuable and some doorways are taboo and forbidden but all i could think at the end of this you know like and i don't have i have one experience with psychedelics under my belt you know so i say this as like a total novice but um i kept thinking about how i kind of wished i could microdose my dad because i was like from a medicinal standpoint, this would be something that would ease the anxiety, which is making his breathing harder, which is making the dying process. And I'm not talking about the days of dying. I'm talking about the extended more time months filled with panic attacks and having to take, um, you know, all of these sedatives to just get himself to be somewhat regulated. Uh -huh. And then the like, side effects of all of that. I mean, and at that point, you're kind of like, who even cares? Because the, you know, the wheels are coming off. But like, if you can 
it, it, it was such a wish for me that that was something that I would have been able to do for him to open a contracted space in his mind to mm-hmm. a knowingness that things will be okay. They will not be the same, but things continue. And, you know, in, in this work, in the death doula work, you also you have to be very mindful about what someone's belief and circumstance is because it's not my job to perform medical tasks in any way. And it's not my job to turn their minds to what I believe is real. Mm -hmm. So I think that should I go into this as a professional capacity, I think um, that will be a challenge. Yeah. Like how do you hold back the burning insight when you're, working with someone and you're connecting and this thing dawns and and then I understand putting on the brakes like can't is this the right time can they handle it is it the right potency because you don't want to create more fear completely take the rug out from under them however how else are we supposed to function in an effective way if we hold our tongue at times where there might not be another chance to work with someone. You know, I, I can only theorize in what I, what I think, because I'm, I'm a really straightforward person and and same, like I see that opening and I just, I'm like, whoop, we got a slight crack. We need to run this through as quickly and as intensely as we can. Right. And I think that's, that's part of the lineage that, you know, or one of the lineages that we've trained under is like, as soon as you see that opening, can I drive the wisdom home? Um, and it's a really great practice of self-discipline to question my motive and desire behind doing that, um, with my intention to serve Mm. because my job there is to hold space for their death experience. And I can offer whatever it is that I, that I'm getting cues that they might need and to not um, devalue subtlety because I think when you are straddling the world with one foot in, you know, what is something that we can touch and your other foot is in the other realm, I firmly believe that there is receptivity to those things is there, whether they even consciously recognize it or not. And so, you know, I'm a Reiki practitioner. And so, the power of energy, like you were talking about being in New York and having to find yoga and meditation as a response to this overstimulation of energy, energy works. And so if I can imbue my energy with what I believe this truth to be in service to someone else, can I trust my beliefs enough to walk into that space and witness the power of the subtlety of that? I don't know, we'll see. I wish I had a definitive answer to that, but... Yeah, that's a powerful frontier within every person. Like from a lower chakra perspective, the the number of hours and experiences it takes to be stable enough, potent enough, and um, confident enough to to step up and be of service in a real way, and then being able to break through into the heart space and allow for that intuitive loving uh, exchange 
where it's not obviously about us. You know, meaning the 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 healer fixing the other person. Like that's that's where the ego stumbles for sure. That's not where the magic happens. But yeah, you're right. Our our tradition is very much about when we see a that trench in the Death Star to charge in with the torpedoes. Yeah, I mean, because yeah. we, see, we see the value in it, and and to just think that like I could totally wreck someone's death experience because I come in and they're like, "Are you speaking in tongues? Like, crazy. what is happening? What is this crazy shit you're talking about?" And you're like, "Okay, okay, maybe not. Here is a washcloth to cool your forehead, and that that's what they need, and that I can imbue that with." with love and with the wish that they no longer be suffering in a greater capacity. Yes. So if, if a death doula is working and being hired mm-hmm. to um, be a li- liaison between the realms for people who are not friends and family, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, like someone buys my album, there was like my mom or my friend, they're like, great job. But, you know, to get it out <laughs> there where, you know, others are asking for your services, wouldn't there be like a vetting process, like some some amount of openness from the family, or particularly, hopefully, the person who is about to die, saying even knowing to call a death doula that you know that exists is one thing, and then two, uh, would they have some sort of interview process to find out their backgrounds and their spiritual languages? Mm-hmm. So we're not just you know hoping that we can help. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so, uh, you know, the idea is that anyone can do this work because bringing death work home uh, so that we can care for our loved ones in uh, a real capacity instead of handing the power away to, like, the medical powers that be, um, I think learning about this stuff is extremely important so it benefits everybody. Um, death doulas traditionally have a relationship with a local hospice so that um, people can get in touch with them and it you know it gives them an access right like it, it, you're you're in the community at that point um, so I think you're right there's a little bit of like self-selection like people who are even aware that death doulas exist I think have already rounded the curve on what we do mm-hmm. um, and you know, from a coaching capacity, I don't coach anyone that um, I haven't already met with. And so I usually have some kind of interview. So I don't think that there's a standard of how it goes, but that's certainly the way that I intend to do things is, can I talk to the family? Can I meet this person who's in transition? Um, If, in fact, there's enough time to talk to the person who's dying as well, because organizations like hospice we see are brought in far too late in the game. When they're brought in, the average time that anyone is in hospice is seven days. And that's really not a lot of time because so much of the dying process happens before that, that by the time you're starting to witness the stages in those seven days, death is imminent. And so consciousness is dropping off, ability to understand concepts and language. We start to see a lot of that shifting. Um, So part of this education is um, teaching people how to recognize when to ask for help as well. I see. Um, As the the dying person is 
still lucid? Um, is it a process of asking them, how would you like the set and setting of the space you're in to be? Like, I don't want people crying and wailing in the room. I don't want any arguing. No smoking. Cigarettes, please. You know, like, do, is this uh, something that they offer? Yeah, absolutely. So when there is planning involved and sort of preparation, it's exactly that conversation. And, um, you know, it's our job to advocate for making sure that those things are met. And so it's not so much a role where you're like resting power from the family members or whoever's there in support. You're actually working really hard to ensure that you're facilitating and supporting them doing the work for the person who's dying. So to have those conversations of like, you know, what I didn't think, like, what do you want? I didn't think that I had a way that I wanted to die. And as part of this training, I have to really, it's not just the existential stuff of like, this heart is going to stop and this body is going to decay and it's going to come apart and the meanness that I perceive now is going to be something other or nothing at all. It's also like the logistic standpoint, where do I want this meat sack to be and how do I want it to be treated towards the end, you know? Um, and it turns out a lot of people have a lot of opinions that they don't even know that they have. I was shocked at the way that I wanted to go. I was like, huh, who knew? Oh, so what changed for you? Um, you know, like I always knew that I would donate my body to science and that afterwards, you know, they do a cremation and you go back to your family and burial has never been important to me. So I always thought, you know, just like throw my ashes wherever. I used to joke with my mom when I was a kid. I was like, you know, if I die early, just huck my body in the woods. Like, it doesn't matter. Just like throw it off the side of the road. It's like not a big deal. Um, and when I was asked to do this, like, what would my ideal death be? There wasn't a particular age in mind. There were very clear ideas of who would I want there. And very surprisingly to me, I did not choose any family members. Um, they were close friends. And I am outside on a chaise lounge with a cat in my lap at night, able to look at the sky. And um, everyone that I love who's there in support, who knows that I'm dying, knows that it's a no tears situation. And so I can hear the people that I love in the background, in the kitchen, cleaning up dishes from dinner and joking around with each other. And my best friend has the most amazing laugh and I can hear that nearby. And I basically Irish exit this whole situation. And to me, that seems so perfect that no one has to witness the moment. I actually want to be alone in that moment because with the training that we have and, and the spiritual practices that I have and pursue, I want to meet it with such sharp attention because if I've spent my whole life thinking of death as a motivator or a friend that walks with me or this inevitable thing that comes, I don't want to miss it. And I also don't want to hear anybody spewing some weepy bullshit into my ears. Like, I don't, I don't want it. Mm -hmm. And it felt so empowering to be like, oh, I got a diagnosis and somebody said, you've got two weeks left. I would use that first week to say goodbye to my friends and family. And then I would 
straight up get like a death Airbnb. Like I will spend all my money on this beautiful place and I will die exactly where I want to be. Um, still donate my body. And then I learned with the ashes, I learned that there's a place it's in uh, England, I think, um, where I can have my ashes pressed into vinyl records. Yeah! and take a breath. Oh, wow. Now, which album would you be pressed into? So, I mean, that's really, that's, it's so tough. That's I don't so think metal. I don't yet, but I thought, like, you can do any recording, too. So, like, I could, in theory, record a meditation and I could have my voice and a meditation for my loved ones on one side oh, of this. Oh, man, I got chills. Yeah. <laughs> I could create a relaxing sound bath for my friends and family. Like, I could do something that's in service to them. And then I realized, I was like, you know, I think it would be really funny if one side was, um, you know, uh, Pink Floyd's, like, Shine On You Crazy Diamond. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, then the other side to have it be like, I don't know, like a Rodney Dangerfield skit, <laughs> 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 you know, and just have every like record baby delivered. shark. Yeah. Have like every record no. delivered to your house with like Pink Floyd and then, um, you know, a little bit of shrooms and just be like, Hey, I'll see you later. <laughs> <laughs> so I think it would be fun because it would just be a great morbid joke, which is how I live life anyway. Mm -hmm. So keep it on brand, you know? <laughs> yeah. Wow. Uh, and, you know, it also presupposes that it's not like uh, I walk outside and get hit on the head with a falling uh, air conditioning unit. Mm -hmm. It just lights out. Yeah. That, that's the value of uh, a long-standing death meditation, medita death meditation practice. And, you know, I, I remember hearing with a fair degree of shock and I was disheartened his holiness the Dalai Lama said you know like they had put him on a general anesthetic for procedure and he, this is a, a cat who's practiced since he was three you know like mm -hmm. his life is practice he's like I, okay I got this and they hit him with that stuff and it was lights out and when he came out the other side he's like it was just way too fucking fast like the marks and signs that I was supposed to be able to track, the hallucinations that accompany the dissolution of the consciousness into the, the black near attainment, it just went too fast. And next thing I know, I'm waking up. And uh, I mean, that was four month long retreats for me. That's like the center of the sadhana was how to go through the dying process, how to get familiar with these marks and signs. Mm -hmm. and to go into extended single-pointed dissociative states to explore that territory again back to rending the veil mm -hmm. so right. that when we're going from waking to dreaming or into deep absorption states where the ego must be walked off of its own plank we've done it so much that it it's not fearful anymore. It's like changing clothes. Mm -hmm. That's my hope that with the interweb and all these apps and that powerful, potent teachers can find an audience to share this with so that the greater population of this planet who's open to it could 
have some real tools and it doesn't have to be uh oh i hope this is the case it can be experimental expeditions that build on one another just like every time i i go to target practice you know i learn something new every time i pick up my guitar i learn something new and that i mean how do you feel about it do you feel like this uh this could happen in our lifetime we could see people actually have a um an education in this i think so um i mean to a certain degree right because they're there's something about death work and I think this sort of burgeoning field of the way that it's being done now is um, it's subversive, you know, because if you look at how much money is behind death, there's so much, I mean, you, anti-aging stuff and all of the medical, I mean, most of the money that people spend on medical stuff is at the end of their life trying to avoid their death. Um, and funeral industries, they're like you, we need some of that certainly. And people who work in funeral homes and mortuaries and all of that, like it's, it's important work. Um, but there's still an industry. So it's kind of interesting because it's like this anti-capitalist, like total revolutionary punk rock mindset to be like, oh, I'm going to have a green burial and like, I'm not going to be afraid of death. So I think that there's a lot of, um, we still have quite a few sticks to put in the spokes of the machine to stop the way that it moves currently. Um, but I do think that this idea is reaching people more. I sat on a call with um, the woman that is training me. Her name's Elua Arthur. And um, she offered a free webinar about um, what is in a death doula's bag? What do you carry with you? And there were over 700 people on that call. And there was no advertising other than her Instagram and those of us that shared it. So you see that there's a desire and there is a hunger for demystifying death as much as you can. Um, and ultimately, that would be my goal, I think. I don't know that I have the desire to sit vigil for hundreds of people over my lifetime um, as they die. But to do work similar to what she's doing, which is to educate people about it and to have these conversations. Um, that's a big goal of mine, I think. Yeah. To teach these things. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Heather, we are out of time. Mm -hmm. And boy, did it fly by. So much here. <laughs> I, I would love to continue the conversation. I feel like we barely scratched the surface. Will you return for a, a part two? Yeah, absolutely. I'd love it. Yes. Now I'll drag my skeleton over here to the computer so that we can do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, speaking of death, I just came back from, from my first solo jaunt outside rock, rock climbing. And I'm so, <laughs> so frightened <laughs> of heights. I was like five inches off the ground. That's how I started, you know, like I need just the amount, that amount of risk, intensity, uh, element to shut off my ADD and, mm -hmm. and get everything together. Uh, I refuse to take stupid uh, risks, though. I didn't climb more than a few feet off the ground. But I tell you, when I find some real guides up here that I can trust my ass to, um, I want to get up on a rope. Mm -hmm. because that is I mean it's just one of those things you you 
always feel the most alive when you're closest to death. Yeah, next time I go skydiving, you should come with me out there near New Paltz. Totally. That's the first place I ever went. So good. I love it so much yeah. because of that. Like you just get there and you're like, time means nothing. Everything's wild. What do I want to do with this? And then all of a sudden you're in a canopy and it's no big deal. <laughs> yeah. I, I would like to encourage everyone who's listening to this to, to find where their life wheelie exists. When you pop your life wheelie, the thing that stops the intellect and allows you to be fully in a in a fun, present, fully energized mode, what is that? And please find ways to explore that. Even in your Tadasana, I like to toddle, I like to lean back, let my toes come up, stumble backwards, so that that has a chance to be repurposed from like a fuck up or a mistake or oops what did other people think to an opportunity to have a happy accident and recover that authentic energy that we channel into our posture and that could be a mental posture that could be a freaking asana that could be walking across the street mental posture i think is so important in that right because we work so hard to create security and to create so many knowns in our life. And that's not where exploration and discovery happens. It happens when you stand at the precipice of what you believe you know and what you know you don't. So forcing yourself to go there and like really peer in and see what's there, I think um, has a lot of value and it is unsettling. Mm-hmm. And, Powerful and fun. I don't know. I think all the powerful words start with F, right? (laughs) Fun, fear, fascination, food, you know, and all the other ones. But to to have fun where we feel all that energy that could be could be fearful. Like first time you ever got on a knee board and got and held on to a rope behind a speedboat. It it very much can be fearful, and then how else are we supposed to practice flipping the script to fascination and back into flow state mm-hmm. then showing up practicing and giving that nutrition to ourselves each day hopefully that there's something that rins the veil and allows us to feel fresh as another f mm-hmm. yeah and i just yeah firm believer that a plateau is boring so whatever i can do to amp up what's happening in a in a real way that allows discovery is yeah. all I ever want. Yeah. Another F, franchises, right? Like people travel and then it's sooner or later like a certain po- degree of population is only going to eat at McDonald's even though <laughs> <laughs> they spend all that money to go to, to Morocco. You know, I just, I don't know, I just want KFC. I just have to have that. <laughs> I just want KFC. I don't even know. I think that the last time I said that, I was maybe like 11. (laughs) Fried. There's another F. All right, so (laughs) on that note, (laughs) it's great to see you, part two for sure. And you have a beautiful night. It's good to see you again. Thank you.